Cashlack is really not a real hospital? No. Okay, not I kept yet. on wondering not, about that. Okay. Not yet. Not yet. Maybe someday. I just want this to happen once where like some newswire picks it up, thinks it's a real story, and then runs it. <laughs> Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hello. Hello, that Stuart. That was way too loud. <laughs> I think you blew out your speakers there. <laughs> let's, let's try that again. Hold on. <laughs> no, I don't think we should. I think we should just keep going on. Oh. So this is an internal medicine podcast where we interview the experts to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. I'm right. Dr. Matthew Watto here with my co-host, Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. Well, hello again. <laughs> number, number two. <laughs> that was better that time. Yeah. Yeah. And Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Hey guys, how are you? Hey, Williams. <laughs> how are the kids, Paul? The, the three are doing great. Thank you for asking. You're welcome. <laughs> I thought you had two mediocre sons, not three. <laughs> I, it's hard for me to keep track. <laughs> that, sh- that shows how, me- how uh, mediocre they are. <laughs> On this episode, we have back our two esteemed guests, Stefan Kertes and AJ Manhapra. They are addiction medicine specialists and here to talk with us this time a, a bit about a bit more about opioid addiction. We had lots of questions. We talked about a little bit about detox, about counseling patients who are about to uh, be becoming off opioids. We did dip into some of the health policy changes that are that are going to be taking place or that have already taken place and what those what those mean for patients. It is a very a wide ranging discussion and a lot of my a lot of my questions about opioids were answered at least to the extent that they could be i feel like this is a topic where there's not a lot of agreement even among experts which you'll hear a little bit of that on this and i think it's a really complicated issue very interesting discussion it'll certainly make you question things so please give us your feedback let us know what you think and with us tonight are our two wonderful guests returning for a part two on addiction medicine, Stefan Kertes. Hello. And AJ Manhapra. Hi. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming back. And, and if it's okay with you, we'll, we'll go by first names again for, for the rest of the show here. That's fine with me. And that's mostly for my inability to pronounce last names, which we've all experienced in the uh, pre, pre-show warm-up here. Let's, uh, before we get back to talking about uh, opioids, I'd, I'd like to ask you each, Stefan, did you have any sort of pick of the week, whether it's a medical app or a book, something that you can recommend to the audience that you've recently found helpful or, or interesting? Uh, well, I'm trying to fall asleep at night. Uh, I really enjoy this epic fantasy series, The Stormlight Archive, written by a guy named Sanderson. Incredibly good fantasy work. And um, when you're overworked and overwrought about issues like opioids and addiction in society, uh, this is just a beautiful fantasy series with strong female characters. Yeah, what's funny about that that fantasy series? I don't, I don't know if you know this or not, but the, uh, the 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 prose is written as though it's an anime. Oh so wow! If if you imagine it as if it's an anime, that's that's actually the perspective that the author took. Interesting. So I, 
it's it's almost like junk food for the for the mind. <laughs> it's really helping me cope. <laughs> it, it it is actually de- it's a decent book. Uh, this one time that I was that I was in an undisclosed location and an undisclosed part of the of the world, I uh, read through uh, the first two books, and it it you know kept me uh, warm on those uh, cold nights. <laughs> I've had no time to read anything for the past month. <laughs> I've been obsessively working on a couple of manuscripts, so it's, it's all my time is. But Bob Dylan has a new album, which is fantastic. I would advise everybody to go take a listen. I never knew that Bob Dylan could sing. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Paul or Stuart, did you have a pick of the week you wanted to give here? I'm gonna, I'm gonna abstain. No, I'm, I'm gonna abstain. That, that, that was, that's good for me. I think Paul wants to add something though. But I think I'm gonna recommend um, a book actually, rather than a movie for a change. Um, maybe I recommended it before. Again, I've lost track because I don't listen to the show. But um, maybe last week, <laughs> yeah, maybe so. <laughs> but uh, so I'm a huge Kurt Vonnegut fan. I actually consider him one of my few heroes in life. Um, and I think one of his underappreciated books is the book Dead Eye Dick, which came out in 1982. And it's like most of his books, it's kind of hard to sum up thematically. It's, it's, this is going to make it sound more depressing than what it is, but it basically is about this kid who inadvertently, um, shoots a pregnant woman on Mother's Day and the guilt that he carries with him for the rest of his life and how it impacts him. Oh that's, my gosh. That sounds so devastating. It's, it's not an easy read, but it has, there's, everyone loves to quote Vonnegut. No one knows what quotes, no one knows what books the quotes are from, but most of them, or a lot of them are from this book. But no, no, there's still, there's a lot of quotable Vonnegut in this about the still being the dark ages and it's his principal objection to life is the fact that it's possible to make perfectly terrible mistakes. So it's those are kind of the underarching philosophies of the entire thing. Like I said, it's not an uplifting book, but it's not also not quite as crushing as it made it sound out to be. But it's Vonnegut, so it's worth reading. So so I so here if you want to be depressed, read Vonnegut. If you want to be uplifted, read Stormlight Archives. I feel like that's probably right. <laughs> <laughs> Two wildly divergent opinions. The Vonnegut book is it from an anime perspective? <laughs> God forbid. <laughs> it's about time anime just got punishing. With that, maybe maybe we should go to a case from Cashlack Memorial Hospital. And this this is a patient uh, based based on a on a real case, but de-identified and changed up slightly. This was a, a 32 year old male presented in clinic to the office with his wife, basically saying that he has active opioid addiction, using IV heroin daily, and says that he's ready to quit but doesn't know how. Wants to know, can we help him? And he has a history of anxiety, PTSD. And hasn't really seen a doctor for quite a while. Is not really on a lot of medications. So, where we want to take take this uh, th- on this discussion is getting a little bit more in depth about what sort of what might treatment, what might detox look like, and and how can we help these people. But I think first we we talked about this a little bit in pre recording, and I think this would be an interesting place to start. Stefan, can you give us? A little bit of your view on this controversy is addiction is opioid use disorder is it a is it is it a disease or is this something other than that so first of all if 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 you give me only two choices if you say it's a moral flaw or it's a disease i'm with disease okay okay i, I don't really want to get into a zone of punishing and scorning people who have this particular challenge because we all have our challenges uh, conversely, I find the disease concept, particularly if you speak of it as just a brain disease, uh, confining. 
so I would say that addiction is to some degree everything we've ever thought it was, which is to say it's a very disordered set of choices uh, that cause harm uh, with compulsion, compulsion to engage in those choices. And the choices are conditioned on your biology, on your genetics, on your economic situation, on your social environment, on your sense of your own opportunities, and on existential and spiritual issues as much as anything else. And um, we need to respond as doctors very often by looking at it as disease, but we have to understand that the actual outcomes are extraordinarily heavily driven by a range of other factors, many of which have a lot to do with agency and choice in the individual uh, and forces that we don't always fully understand. So can I ask, I was listening to this, and if I just substitute in type 2 diabetes, I don't know that I would actually change much of what you said at all. <laughs> so how are you making, no, and I'm being serious, but and, and then how, how then are you differentiating that from sort of a classic disease, I guess? I, I think I can just shut up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. So, so if I have a person who has uh, type 2 diabetes, and I say, you know what, uh, there's something very serious going on. You are... You're going to make. You're going to lose your job if you don't stop having type two diabetes, or you're pregnant. Your pregnancy is going to go disastrously wrong unless you stop having type two diabetes. And up until now, whenever you've needed treatment, you've taken a medicine for it, and the medicine worked fine. But I said to you, you know what? The medicine is also not available to you because. Uh, but there's an overwhelming issue now. Uh, your pregnancy will be destroyed unless you stop your diabetes right now. Uh, a lot of addiction patients will just stop it. Uh, the average person will not be able to stop their diabetes instantaneously in response to being told that their pregnant their pregnancy could be lost. Uh, so there's a choice issue now. Diabetes still has lots of choices. A type two diabetic could gradually lose weight, could gradually exercise. They could do a number of things to to improve the biological situation that they are in, partly from you know a variety of forces that came to bear upon them. But they won't likely stop on a dime and exert all of their will to suddenly make the disease condition appear to disappear. So I think it's it's kind of different. AJ, what do you what do you think? This is highly problematic, right? The the here is what I think. Um, what data tells you? So the best data we have is the Vietnam heroin study. So around forty percent of the people who came from Vietnam were heroin addicted or some form of dependence. A year later, they came and you know, uh, re, re interviewed them, only 12% were, 12% of the 40%, that is around 3 4% were, were dependent on heroin, right? So that says it all, right? If the right addiction sets up in, in the right environment with the right availability, with the lack of other choices, for, for a particular purpose, you know, whatever it is, being happy, being stress-free, being, you know, those things. And if, you, if they keep on using it for those particular purposes, a proportion of them will develop a disease state. Not everybody does, only a small proportion. So that is what addiction is. And if you look at the natural history of addiction, on average, whether it's alcohol use disorder or cocaine use disorder, heroin use disorder, average addiction lasts for, you know, for about five years and they quit by themselves. 80% of people quit whatever be the substance used, you know, by themselves. The 20% who have, you know, who are in your office, like your patient, belongs to that 20%, right? That 20% have tried quitting like multiple times. 
So in those set of peoples, if you say there is no disease, it's kind of hard. Mm. Opioid addiction is a mighty tricky stuff because people die at a very high rate. Mm-hmm. So if you accept it's a disease, there is no chronic disease that causes 6% of annual mortality. Mm. Right? So you don't know who can quit. You don't know who, you know who cannot quit. When you quit by themselves, there's a certain risk of mortality associated with it. So in, in opioid use disorder, I am a little wider in accepting what is a disease state. When alcohol use disorder, not so much. We're in strong agreement that we have to make sure that treatment that is effective be broadly available. And since we can't predict exactly uh, who's going to need formal treatment, it needs to be extremely broadly available. And we're nowhere near that at this point in time. I want to talk about what we might offer this patient, Mr. Z, that we're talking about. So he's he's using heroin, intravenous heroin, and how might you counsel him what's available? Stefan, I'll throw it to you first. I would want to understand a few things about his living situation and about his prior treatment experiences. So uh, although my trigger finger would be pulling toward getting him into a biological therapy uh, like buprenorphine or methadone, Uh, I would really want to understand where is he living, under what circumstances is he living, how chaotic are those? Is that situation? Is he living under a dumpster or is he in a stable house? Uh, What happened during his last treatment experience? If he says, you know, I really loved taking buprenorphine, except that I had to live with my dad and my dad just chewed me out every single day. And eventually I ran out and bought a whole bunch of methamphetamine Mm -hmm. and then actually stopped taking the bup and started up some heroin again. I'd say, you know, I need to know this stuff about their life and their prior treatment experiences. And then, of course, I'm leaning very strongly toward trying to figure out how to fit a biological stabilizing agent into uh, the situation, but with the context uh, well-planned. Uh, I'd love to hear what AJ has to say, too. Bup, bup, bup. Okay. And, and for this, <laughs> so that's bup, bup short for buprenorphine. And it, let's say that this gentleman, he's in a stable position. Let, let's say he's gotten back together with his wife. He has stable housing. He's, he wants to get back and kind of go back to work. He wants to get back involved with his kids. So he's going to be stable, not really taking a lot of other meds. What, what, uh, AJ, what might that first visit, how would you counsel him about this medical therapy you're offering him with buprenorphine? So here is the perspective that you have to get when you're treating, approaching treatment. Okay. One, if he's in office, he's seeking out treatment, whether he tells you he's seeking out treatment. If he tells you he has opioid use disorder, means that he's seeking out help. Right? Yes. He's not quite sure how he how he wants to. If he, if he explicitly says he needs help, it is rather easy. The rest is a little difficult because he's t- still telling you he's using, right? Why would somebody tell you some stigmatizing information, mm-hmm. right? Without, you know, without, a, you know, so he's, if he's in office here telling you he he's seeking treatment, there's a seeking treatment seeking population. And you can make a reasonable assumption that he has tried stopping multiple times before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So that is a reasonable assumption. Then when you approach treatment addiction, there is always two treatments. One, the medication treatment. Number two, the behavioral treatment. Right. It, if, in in majority of the people, in especially in opioid use disorder, it's a single receptor, you know, very good two agents that really works well, right? Opioid use disorder is the easiest addiction to treat, right? Because it's a yeah. single receptor, 
it's there's effective medications right so if you treat with with uh, buprenorphine or you know in 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 some people methadone which is very difficult to get because of the legal issues and stuff like that in buprenorphine about 80% of the people do not require professional psychotherapy or counseling because they figure their way out they are in your office they they, require, they don't require uh, uh, psychosocial treatment professional psychotherapy treatment they need a little bit of counseling from you regarding you know you know uh, relapse prevention avoiding risk and things like that you know the standards you know which you can go into up to date and read and learn in, in half an hour right it's not complicated it's what you do every day in regarding diabetes education things like that you just have to have a structure and you have to need the ability to prescribe buprenorphine and this is what multiple trials have shown but that doesn't mean that everybody does not require professional psychotherapy or or things like that behavioral therapy or inpatient therapy or something like that right 20% do not get better with with medication treatment they require more help and those are the people harder to treat and who require in a lot of support okay but they might not be ready for support right engagement is critical it's okay for them for them to fail a couple of times and they self identified they require more higher level of treatment so it you know that is my approach towards these things and and a word about detox okay in opioid use disorder i don't think detox is required anymore so you can just stop taking medication one day and within 6 to 8 hours you can restart you can start buprenorphine so the buprenorphine induction is 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 an idea that came out of methadone and it is being proposed by a lot of people but really you don't need that much of you know we mostly do home inductions now we don't you know we give the pills to the patients and ask them to start at home so it is like any other medication it's just an opioid it's not complicated we give opioids all the time you just have to tell them if you start buprenorphine you know within 4 hours or few hours of taking you know heroin or something you're going to experience withdrawals because buprenorphine's mm-hmm. binding is tighter than heroin and it will kick it out and before the buprenorphine action comes on you'll have a time of period of you know precipitated what we call as precipitated withdrawal so if you allow enough time between the last heroin dose or or the oxycodone dose and the initiation of buprenorphine it's not complicated and everybody who has got seriously heroin use disorder they already know because they already mm. tried it from the street <laughs> okay on the issue of psychosocial needs and treatment it's it's often recommended that individuals who are receiving medication for opioid use disorder receive some sort of behavioral or psychological treatment and sometimes it's set up as a precondition that is you mm-hmm. can't get this medicine right. unless you receive this other behavioral treatment and both AJ and I don't support that view and uh, you know to the extent that drug use is measured as an outcome in randomized controlled trials uh, the view simply hasn't been supported by evidence conversely you heard AJ say that at least 20% of people have very complex psychosocial situations um if you're going to start a treatment it makes perfect sense and i'm quoting the american society of addiction medicine guideline go ahead and assess what are the psychosocial needs of that person who are their supports are there any community service needs that they have at this time do they wish to receive some sort of psychotherapy right. or supports uh, that's worth asking 
Well, it's it's interesting because this actually flies right in the face of of some of the the, the data that we have from Vietnam. So you're mentioning that the the relapse rate from these uh, soldiers that came from Vietnam, and I actually pulled this up. I was curious to know what what the actual numbers were. So the relapse rate was five percent. And this was with uh, around 15% of those who were deployed to Vietnam in 1971, self-identified as users who were addicted while they were deployed. And what they did was that they they outsourced their behavior. They basically forced these soldiers to stay in theater until they were clean and clear. And then they allowed them to come back to the United States. So th- this wasn't a, hey... Uh, do you need the, the, do you need this? It was forced upon them. And the, and, and the, the conclusions that were made were, was that by outsourcing this behavior, it forced a change that they otherwise wouldn't have adopt, ad, ad, adopted themselves. I'm sorry, adopted themselves. And so this, this brings up one of the questions that I wanted to, to ask you about. And that is, how effective are things like Narcotics Anonymous where you have someone who's going to hold you accountable, whether you like it or not? Narcotic Anonymous is not like that. <laughs> it, it depends. You know, one narcotic, you know, it's the AA. Is, you know, if you have seen one AA, you have seen one AA. That's about mm-hmm. it, right? So it, it's a widely varied. So people who go to a bunch of them, about half, I would say, you know, roughly around half would get better, you know, by going to AA and the other half struggle a lot, Right. In the physician office, also probably eight. It's more like eighty twenty. You know, eighty eighty percent struggle and twenty percent. You know, with the physician support, quickly wean off. You know, in a nutshell, is that you know eighty twenty rules works here. Eighty percent of people quit by themselves. The rest of the twenty percent cannot quit by themselves. Mm-hmm. You're saying so, of the twenty percent, about fifty percent can quit with treatment, and the other half yeah. are just going to struggle lifelong addiction. Okay. That's why I ask about the prior history, because I sort of want to understand our, which category am I in? And the easiest way to figure that out is to figure out what happened over the last five to 10 years. Okay. And, and if you get the history, lots of unstable living, lots of maybe comorbid uh, psych issues, they've been in and out of treatment multiple times and keep failing, then you're like, this is probably this 10% of the people, you know, there was there was 80% got better kind of with not much, just the primary care working with them. There was 10% that got better with some intensive treatment, but you're you're seeing the 10% that, that just this person is struggling and, and they have a poor prognosis probably. And that is so, all hands on deck. Okay. Yep, so, Here's the thing, okay, and opioid addiction is different. I, I, I keep on reminding people this again and again a little bit. You know, opioid, dif- the, the, the risk of death is incredibly high. Mm-hmm. So if you engage in medication treatment, your risk of death reduces considerably. Mm-hmm. So the primary focus, it's almost like yeah. getting an ICU patient, right? Mm-hmm. You you start the antibiotic, then you figure out the rest. You know, antibiotic and the fluid, then you figure out the rest. Mm. Right? It's 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 almost like that. You get them on bupermethrone somehow quickly. Then we have room to once they feel better, they are ready to engage and talk with you a little bit better, and they are, they are a lot more available. The psychiatric illness is adds a level of you know your PTSD adds a level of complication to the whole treatment because. The addiction, dependence has a particular property, okay, where it enslaves every single symptom that you have, every single psychological symptom that you have, and uses them in its service. It's not only the drug they are dependent upon, 
it's the particular way they take the drug the motor activity of taking the drug they are dependent upon mm-hmm. so your body is focused on maintaining a particular level of and type of supply of this drug to keep the normalcy right so the that is driven and when the when the kind of i explain this patient in a simplistic term when the body is not able to maintain that balance your brain has no capacity to come and whisper in your ears go take opioids okay it gives you pain it gives makes you feel you know feel terrible it and it 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 causes you know ptsd symptom worsening so when people have active addiction and psychiatric disorders it is very difficult to discern what is driving it usually i tend to assume it is dependence once you treat the dependence then the rest you know then you make an assessment on what what is left and one other technique is to go back in history and figure out what hap- what started first did the ptsd start first or the addiction start first mm-hmm. right so if if you have ptsd your predilection for addiction if you have addiction your predilection for ptsd so it's it's a complicated world but it is it is a perfect world for internist <laughs> stefan i wanted to ask you i know you do some inpatient medicine when you let's say you were seeing this patient in the hospital he let's say he got admitted for cellulitis or something like that uh related to his iv heroin abuse now he's moving towards discharge how do you know which patient is going to need inpatient versus outpatient and and with his history of PTSD and anxiety would you consider him for like a dual diagnosis inpatient rehab this is a, a thing that i think we face pretty commonly as internists in the hospital oftentimes the key question comes down to whether we're discharging the patient with an indwelling line mm-hmm. and the issue is where where can that line and the therapies that go through it um be least likely to get messed up. <laughs> okay. So in that situation, at least my pattern has been if there's going to be let's say 6 weeks or 4 weeks of intravenous antibiotics and I don't have a crystal clear addiction treatment plan in place and that that's often the case sadly, then I'm going to try to push for a place that they can stay at where ideally they're going to receive an opioid uh I'd preferably be buprenorphine or methadone or whatever while they're in that place for the duration of the intravenous therapy because I want to complete that therapy that does not address the actual treatment of the addiction of course mm-hmm. uh the um but let's imagine that it's kind of a brief cellulitis thing we're going to be finished in 6 days in the hospital and then um the i you know it, ideally what I'd like to do is have that person placed according to their actual need where with the if you look at these criteria from the American Society of Addiction Medicine the severity of the problem the severity of the coexisting psychiatric concerns and the social instability of their life are what are going to drive you to make a recommendation on average most people should be treated as an outpatient particularly if they have a place to live um in number of situations if that's failed repeatedly or if they have no stable place to live uh then a residential type of arrangement makes sense but then you have to find a residential place that is open to medication based treatment and oddly enough we somehow nurtured a system of residential treatments in the United States that are still ambivalent about providing medication for this particularly lethal addiction uh so that's been a real challenge um so so i you know if the patient says to me 
I've been able to benefit in residential and I don't have a stable place to live. I'm going to fight like hell to try to find a place that's residential where they can stay. If the person says, every time I've done outpatient treatment, I felt good for a month and then I fell apart, that might tip my hand toward residential, but not necessarily because I would want to understand what the reason was that they fell apart. Was it access to medication? Was it lack of a job? Was there no social opportunity? Were they hanging out with drug-using friends all the time? Mm -hmm. Are any of those correctable? So a lot of the decision is contextually based on why the last time failed from the point of view of the patient. Um, and, and sort of that's, that's how I maneuver around this. And I'm happy to hear others pipe in. Is, and, and that's, so it sounds a little bit like a shared decision-making with the patient, like kind of assessing their risk. And one of the questions to follow up on what you said before we go to AJ was just, how do you, is the severity assessed? When I was reading in the opioid use, like the DSM, they have those like 12 things that they list and if you have more than five or something, it's severe. Is that how you're doing it? Kind of checking off and through the DSM criteria, or is it just an overall gestalt about the patient, whether it's a severe, moderate, mild? In my real day-to-day life, it's gestalt and not based on running through a checklist. But the things I'm asking myself are, are there any overdoses? Are, are, is there no no productive activity in the world for this individual other than seeking uh, their drug and uh, maybe committing uh, occasional crimes to get their drug? Or are there productive activities where this drug use is an interruption? Uh, does the person have any functional social relationships or are they all a complete mess? Are there other substances being used in tandem with the opioids? So let's say they say, yeah, I use a lot of opioids, but I also use a lot of methamphetamine and cocaine because I don't quite feel right in opioids alone. Well, that to me factors into a more severe kind of situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, I wind up gestalting life circumstances, other substances used, uh, availability of productive activity that they actually engage in, and social relationships. Um, that's what I actually do. AJ, what's your approach? So, boop, 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 boop. Why I say that is not I'm pushing a drug is is because that is what experience and data shows, right? If you treat them medically in opioid use disorder, if you, it's not like alcohol use disorder, which is a even more tougher scene, right? Opioid use disorder. If you treat them, they engage. They tend to engage, and the the whole data regarding long-term inpatient treatment of you know, addiction as a whole is kind of flaky. It is not that effective other than you know, compared to outpatient uh, uh, treatment. So, you know, the intensive outpatient treatment also, especially in opioid use disorder, is not that effective. So the long-term outpatient treatment, the practicality of is uh, most of them do not use medication treatment for opioid use disorder. So it's kind of risky to send them there and then when they come out, you have to make sure there's a follow-up plan so that they don't relapse and they die. And I used to treat homeless people with bup, mm-hmm. right? Their only criteria is to show up mm-hmm. because our goal is very different to keep them alive. Mm-hmm. So if they are showing up every week and even if their heroin is passed, we give bup because they show up. Mm-hmm. So they have a they have a motivation to come back and we treat them, we treat them, we keep them, we keep them after six months, seven months. Okay, doc, I'm ready. It's, it's, it takes, you know, that much time to keep them engaged with your patients and with your, 
with your with your with your empathy and you know mm-hmm. keeping all your things down to get some of these people out of the mess they are in we both agree strongly if there is a difference of tonality but both aj and i strongly agree that the medication component needs to be available for almost every person who would come in for treatment probably everyone uh and and what you're hearing me rea- ration about is not a choice between uh buprenorphine and other forms of treatment but rather if there's buprenorphine or methadone what else might be needed in addition to that and uh i have a pa- i mean i'm thinking of a patient where uh they have opioid use disorder that's extremely severe they don't use any illicit opioids when they're on buprenorphine they do use cocaine and amphetamine and alcohol despite the buprenorphine that person has a pretty chaotic life the problem we've had is every residential program they go to punishes the patient for using the alcohol or that going out for a, a break and buying cocaine they punish them by stopping the buprenorphine and ending mm-hmm. their treatment in the residential program and they say oh we can't prescribe the buprenorphine it's unsafe mm-hmm. because the patient uh, has taken cocaine and methamphetamine right when they went out on their earned break and of course they're making a terrible error they're discharging the patient to the streets where there's lethal opioids at every corner uh and essentially saying we'd rather play dice with this person's life on the fentanyl front uh than have to deal with the complexity of a very difficult patient um so i agree very much on the medication therapy it's just that um i i'm always wrestling with what else is needed and can i get it what i wanted to ask about the buprenorphine therapy is are you in the majority of addiction medicine physicians in in recommending the medical therapy or is there a contingent that is recommending just sort of taper to abstinence? That would be the first question. Then I'll have a follow-up. So it's a mix and back. The idea that you, you have th- that an opioid is a treatment for an opioid addiction is cognitively dissonant to most people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? It is just, it, it, it is a difficult concept to accept, Right? The the thing is that so everybody starts talking about taper, you know, you know, as as if it is the it is the law. No, there is nothing like that. People live on with you know buprenorphine for the their lives with normal lives. People live with methadone in their lives. You know, it is risky, but it is better than dying, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's so, true. <laughs> and a life of crime. We, uh, we are, yeah, and then the life of crime and life of infection and all those things. It is much far better than, you know, we forget that, you know, there's a 5% risk of hypoglycemia with insulin every year. Hypoglycemia can be deadly, right. but we still use insulin, right? So nothing in medicine is risk-free. Well, my, my follow-up question then is, if, if, we're, if we should be offering medical therapy to all these patients with opioid use disorder, then where are we at as far as people who are actually credentialed to provide buprenorphine and methadone? Is, is there a huge shortage? I, I imagine there is. But, Stefan, maybe you could answer, how available is this on a national level? Is it, is it available to the scale that we need it? Well, I can certainly assure you it's not. And um, the the doctors who have buprenorphine, you have to get a special waiver. Mm-hmm. Uh, the waiver requires fulfilling a number of, you know, you have to do about eight hours of training, which is not by itself prohibitive. But then you also have to be prepared to make certain assurances to the federal government to protect that waiver, which requires a system of measurement and tracking in principle 
I think it's the DEA can come in and sort of review you any time to see if you're upholding the conditions. Now, if you're prescribing uh, buprenorphine off-label for treatment of pain, which obviously there's a lot of overlap, those rules don't apply. But if you're treating addiction per se, these rules do apply. And historically, in my institution, I actually had not, have not, but I'm trying to get now, had not obtained a waiver because I wasn't sure exactly how to fulfill the rules of my institution and the rules of the DEA at the same time. Uh, and therefore, it, I would always refer to somebody upstairs. Uh, so if I have that barrier and I'm an addiction-trained doctor, I think it's quite a bit more severe uh, in regular primary care and among plenty of doctors who just don't really feel prepared or comfortable seeing people with addiction. And even the people who do get the waiver such that in, in, in principle they could prescribe buprenorphine, a large percent of, the, of them care for just a few patients – and when there's sort of exploration as to why, they say, well, I'm not sure I know how to take care of these people. Paul, did you want to comment on this at all? No, I mean, you actually just described the exact boat I'm in. So thank you for bringing that up, Dr. Watto. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I am, I'm, I'm licensed to prescribe buprenorphine, but I, I, you, know, you have to provide an assurance that you actually have a, a referral and sort of social service network in place, which, quite frankly, we do not at this point. And sort of the mechanics of it is not something I'd ever done before. Um, and so just the idea of starting just seems kind of daunting. So it's, it's, I like having the option, but I've not actually pulled the trigger yet because I think just in terms of making sure that we have sort of safeguards and systems in place and just a little bit of, um, a little bit of practice under my belt. Like I just, it's, it's sort of hard for me to actually sort of start. I just, I wonder how many providers are kind of in the same situation. So here's the, here's a correct interpretation of the law. Your counseling is good enough. You just have to have, you know, the ability. <laughs> I may beg to differ. <laughs> no, it is. You know, the sense that, you know, if you undergo, prepare yourself a little bit, this is where people get their wires crossed a lot. In the sense that, you know, the, the, the SAMHSA regulation definition of counseling requirement is actually pretty simple and vague, purposefully. Hmm. So that is what you're meeting, right? Then is there any, if the patient requires higher level of, care, do you have a mechanism of referring them out? And most hospitals and most cities have, you know, they have community service board, they have, you know, other places, which, which is, which is easily you do a Google search, you can find, right? So, but it is, it appears very daunting and challenging. In fact, when you start doing it, it is not that daunting and challenging. That is, that is a message I have to give to you. I, having, uh, as I'm prescribing, you know, I have nearly hundred patients on you. In within a few months, I've, I've moved into a new town and started prescribing in March. I have nearly 100 patients on BUP now. So it is not that hard as you think it is, but it is very daunting when you look at it from, from outside, right? So there are a lot of people who are doing very terrible things and prescribing buprenorphine, and just accepting cash and everything. I'm pretty sure all of you will be much better than that. Far, 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 far better than that, <laughs> right? So just take the leap. That's my advice. <laughs> okay. I like it. I, I think it, it sounds like it's, it, well, it's an imperfect science. And, and if we're not, if, if a lot of the patients, if you're, we're, you're saying 80% 80, 80 of the patients probably just with, with us kind of hand-holding, providing emotional support, and just, you know, being there, a lot of these patients can get better, Um if we have access to the medication therapy, we can probably catch another 10%. And then there's probably a certain percentage that we're not going to be able to help. One of the questions is, like, what is being done? Stefan, maybe I'll throw this to you. What is being done maybe at your institution or other institutions for these, 
you know, new generation, the next generation of providers, because in medical school, I really didn't get any, any training in this. It's extremely minimum at this point. And uh, I'm at an institution which has a kind of in-house academy for faculty members who want to learn about addiction over a three-week or a four-week period. Um, there are little uh, bits and pieces of, of space in the curriculum that are beginning to be discussed, uh, a tiny bit on alcoholism. But I think in general, across the country, uh, every medical student, nursing student can expect to learn enormous amounts, enormous amounts about diseases they will never in their entire career see. <laughs> and they will yeah. learn almost nothing about the disease that is affecting, you know, millions of Americans and will kill at least 60,000 people just through overdose alone this year, probably over hundreds of thousands if you add together all the other medical complications. We have a grave problem in health education. Uh, and I, my view is that if you're institution, medical, nursing, occupational therapy, if you receive a single dollar of federal subsidy of any kind, and now I'm on my soapbox, <laughs> you must be required to demonstrate curricular impact change to curriculum this year or forego some component of that subsidy. I would say a nice emergency declaration would be to force every uh, nursing school and medical school to do something right now and rapidly. And I must say, Full disclosure, I pay dues to a professional organization that seeks to advance health education in the addictions. Hey, man, don't, don't, don't knock uh, disseminate strange lawyers. I've, I have diagnosed one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Stuart. You're welcome. I have to, I have to uh, congratulate ourselves, the great state of Virginia. Okay. We are probably one of the first states in the country to mandate that all medical schools should teach addiction and pain. And we have, you know, we have started a framework. We have provided a first framework of pain and addiction curriculum for medical students, which is pretty soon either it became the law or it is pretty soon becoming the law of the state. So based upon that, in the next few months, we probably will have some educational material by this, paid by the state of Virginia pretty soon. In the next year, I, I wanted to share an anecdote from uh, this is burned in my mind when I remember learning about opioids in medical school, and the lecturer was actually quoting that New England Journal letter to the editor that was saying that there's almost no risk of addiction by prescribing opioids mm. uh, to patients who were hospitalized with acute pain. And I know that letter has been talked about before, but it's been cited hundreds of times and people were point that people trace the opioid epidemic partly back to that. I, I don't think that's totally fair, but uh, and and I just remembered it like 20 years later when it's coming out uh, that that was kind of circulating recently. And I was reading that. I'm like, I remember someone teaching us this in medical school. And and that was the training I got on opioids is like, yeah. they're, they're safe. Just use them. Yeah. So before we get into our discussion of policy here, Stefan, I wanted to ask you about a different, a slightly different twist on this case. When you have the patient in clinic who is basically... You have a patient in clinic, they're on long-term opioids, you think maybe this person is diverting or maybe they're actually supplementing by buying stuff, by buying more opioids on the streets, they're, they're really just, they're not benefiting from the therapy and you want to, you want, let's say the patient is starting to buy into it now and they're saying, doc, I, I really think I need to come off of these medications, they're not helping me. 
is this is this someone we should also be offering buprenorphine to? I, I just have not. I mean, I was in a primary care setting uh, the past four years, and it was not being done. And there was lots of patients I think would have benefited if that's if that's the way we should be going. So I take it that you've changed the frame a little bit to somebody who's been on long-term opioids for a diagnosis of chronic pain. Yes. But where we have reason to believe, based on the duration of the therapy, uh, that there's dependence of a physiologic nature and maybe something more complicated. And Dr. Van Hopper recently published a superb paper in the journal Substance Abuse about exactly this group, the sort of complex persistent dependence patients. Um, if a patient literally says, you know, I would like to try to taper, um, in fact, that seems like a pretty good person with whom to initially try it, but to do it in a closely monitored way and potentially to spend some time trying to learn as much as you can about the history, their prior taper experience, enlisting them for frequent visits. Perhaps this taper involves very slow moving taper, but many, many visits uh, mm-hmm. to learn how they're coping. But I would be pretty open to saying, you know, a safer way to stabilize here might well be to make a switch to buprenorphine. And I must say, when that question comes up, I very often text or call the other man on this podcast, Dr. Manhapra. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Stefan. (laughs) So in this thing, I typically change my frame of mind. I assume that the reason for their pain is dependence. The reason for their psychiatric instability or psychological instability is dependence, and I treat dependence. I'm, I'm, I used to be a little more sensitive about throwing out around the diagnosis of dependence, you know, like a few years back. Now I am not. This is dependence. They have to approach it as dependence. It is not addiction. I very clearly explained to my patient it is not addiction. It is dependence which requires treatment. So I treat it with buprenorphine or methadone or whatever. Some people cannot treat buprenorphine. Then I schedule the dose of opioids in the sense of very perfect schedule of opioids and institute behavioral constraints, right? To, 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 to contingencies to maintain them. I bring them back every week. You know, I bring them back all those things, you know. So, so you, you create structure which works for them not works for you, which doesn't satisfy, you know, most of us, mm. when we put in the structure, we focus on our anxieties rather than the patients, you know, what patients can do. So we have to be careful about it. And one thing about this drug-seeking behavior, my psychologist, health psychologist who sits next to me, next door to me, always reminds me, they're asking for help, not drugs. Mm. They think drugs help. <laughs> right. right. I like that. That's so, good. So you, the, your job as a, as a physician is to figure out what can help them. So I, I just have a, more of a, an applicable question to our PCMs out there who, who, who are not really dealing with your, your, your IV heroin user, but maybe someone who's post-surgical, they're taking some low-dosage uh, Percocet, and they keep coming back asking for a refill of the Percocet. Do you, do, you, do you treat them any differently, or is that the same kind of uh, framework and approach that you would use for this patient who's taken maybe like you know one Percocet two to three times daily every single day and, and keeps coming back every month asking for a refill? Is there any, what, how, how would you treat that? So here is, you know, I, I, I told you before, you know, this is, this is a relatively, I I have for my, I, I like symbol logics, <laughs> so I've reduced to symbol logic. Who are these people who get, you know, come to ask you those things? Those are typically people with prior substance use disorders, 
മെന്റൽ ഹെൽത്ത് ആക്റ്റീവ് മെന്റൽ ഹെൽത്ത് ഡിസീസ് ഓർ പൂർ കോപ്പിംഗ് യു ഹാവ് ടു ഐ ട്രെൻ ടു ഐഡന്റിഫൈ ദിസ് പേഷ്യൻസ് അ ഹെഡ് ഓഫ് ടൈം and i know in certain proportion of people they they will have this exhibit this behavior and once you exhibit this behavior now in the old days you did not know what what the path forward was right now you know a substantial proportion of these people will get into trouble if you have these three factors psychiatric disorders prior substance use disorders active substance use disorder polypharmacy three things so if you have those things you know and most of these people who return and keep on asking will have any of these things you know mm-hmm. either you have not don't know it or you have not paid attention to it you know they have not told you or you know you've not you know you've not it's not available in the records or something they will have one of these problems for most for most not all so i would concentrate on that and kind of explain to them that you know this is the road you are looking at do you want to be on you know sitting in a physician office 10 years down the road or 2 years down the road begging for opioids so you have to make it their problem and it is the 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 physiology of pain tells you that if you if you catch them before it becomes a big serious problem it is a controllable problem chronic pain is not due to persistence of injury this is this is this is an idea people miss all the time chronic pain is not due to persistence of injury chronic pain is due to persistence of fear you know subconscious fear so chronic pain is not due to persistent injury i don't know how to explain it any other way but that is how what the neurobiology says so this is why back surgeries fail because you know the problem is not in the back so when people typically the the all injuries heal within 3 months why am i so cocky about it because that is the basis of why we do surgeries mm-hmm. we cut open a guy sew it up till heal in 3 months or they get used to it like in colostomy right colostomy is a complete disruption of normal pathology but people get used to it so in 3 to 6 months all injuries heal or body get used to it or people are no more mm-hmm. so in 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 three of these situations pain is not useful so any pain that persist beyond that time is a is a biologically useless pain and it, you, the the thing is that we because it feels like the real pain we go and connect with the organic pathology quite a bit and we do a lot of things and we mostly fail with that i just want to underscore i generally i experience aj as my guru on these issues and i i continue to entertain a degree of discomfort with this argument that once you see a pain that has endured that there's sort of no physical contributor or no physical contributor worth discussing um i i don't think i have a proof for my or i don't even know if i should provide a proof for why i haven't yet fully bought in i just want it on record that i haven't completely <laughs> adopted that i i think it's hard because these these patients think they have a problem so in some cases they've thought they had this problem for decades and to convince them that they don't is an issue when they're still persistent that they want to keep going with the opioids do you just keep going with the opioids even if they want to escalate right. the doses despite that there's no evidence that you're benefiting them i mean this is the really in primary care this was like the question right. i dealt with right. all the time and it's really it's tough so i don't expect you to have a perfect answer but how do you guys handle it 
first of all, you have to think diagnostically. Uh, I mean, what are the other things that you might be missing? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the patient may have a very uh, anxious style. Uh, They may, in fact, be highly oriented toward dependent, and they may have an unexpected new disease that you need to evaluate for. So that that you shouldn't set that aside. Mm -hmm. Um, I I recently just got notes about several so-called chronic pain patients whose other diagnoses were quite significant iatrogenic uh, problems that were completely missed by their so-called pain experts who were hell-bent on managing opioids rather than evaluating the patient. The other thing is the mental health conditions that um, Dr. You know, Dr. Benhopper spoke about earlier is, you know, so somebody has a serious set of under, you know, coping challenges that may be involve anxiety, uh, existential angst, depression, PTSD. Well, those things have to be treated. Uh, if somebody were, if I were to develop a shared model, I mean, I might come up with a shared model of what's going on with my patients. Say, look, you're, you don't have a very serious diagnosable problem at the level of the surgery you're recovering from, but I feel your anxiety up to the ceiling each time we meet each other. Do you feel it? And if they were to say, well, yeah, uh, I do, actually, I might say, well, can we establish a plan where uh, you begin to work with me on the mental health stuff and for a short period of time or for a defined period of time, with a, I will not be elevating doses, but I'm not going to stop this pill right away. I want you engaged with my psychologist and with me and uh, you, you can trust that I'm going to be reevaluating and likely moving the dose down over time. But I want this to be in the context of a relationship where you can trust me and understand that I'm not going to let go of you. That's great. And this, this is kind of reminding me, when we did our episode on uh, fatigue, we did our episode on fibromyalgia, it, it kind of touched on this where you, you have to tell the patient, like, if you're not sleeping... If you're not doing some sort of activity, you don't even have to call it exercise because that intimidates people. Uh, And if we're not treating your mood disorders or your PTSD, we have no chance at getting this pain. And and I always try to get the patients on board with that. AJ, is there anything else that we're we're missing from this puzzle here? If you are, this is my kind of, you know, anecdotal principle. If you are above 50 to 80 milligrams of oral morphine equivalent per day and you are not getting pain control, there is something else I have not figured out. Mm-hmm. Right? In most people, if there's a war injury, if you've been ICU for six months, you know, different equation, right? If you had 15 surgeries and you ended up on 600 milligrams of morphine, very different issue. But in most people, in an average chronic back pain, if you have above 50, 60 oral morphine equivalents per day and people are not getting pain control, there is something else we have not figured out. I want to use this, and, and I want to, you're, you're bringing up the morphine equivalents. I want to use this as a segue into talking a little bit about health policy here. Stefan, you, recently there, there's been, uh, there's been this, with the CDC guidelines, they kind of set these uh, dosage thresholds. And what that means is sort of people on, I think, 60 to 120, depending on the state you live in, milligrams morphine equivalent per day. Some places were saying if, if patients are on more than that, then that's going to cause some sort of an intervention where you, you, it flags the chart or maybe the pharmacy get, it gets flagged at the pharmacy. Can you talk a little bit about what you think this means for patients and 
it, it sounds like AJ, you're saying there might be some clinical relevance to this, that those patients, you really should, you should be questioning or taking a check in with them. But Stefan, can you talk about it a little bit? So I, first of all, what I heard with AJ's discussion is that if you're dealing with somebody who has poorly controlled pain and it's not the proverbial, you know, 15 surgeries or terrible war injury, <laughs> you're sort of escalating doses kind of in response to a generic complaint, you should be extremely cautious as you're looking at those dose escalations because you're probably responding to complex forms of distress that re- mm. require uh, intervention, uh, identification, and treatment. State regulations, uh, so physicians now are sitting in a world of regulatory uh, insertion in which they are facing pressures from their medical board, quasi-regulatory uh, interventions from a variety of entities. Sometimes it's a formal law, you know, state of Maine basically says take everybody below 100 milligrams or else, but very often it, the, it's the pharmacy benefits plan, the health insurer, the state board, the employer and uh, what you've heard about the DEA investigation of your colleagues that leads you to understand as a physician that you're under pressure to have doses be lower. And the only way to really get yourself, and and, and there's profiling tools which will show you how you compare to your peers in terms of what percentage of your patients are under a given dose versus theirs. And the, the, the problem with this is that what it incentivizes is involuntary mandatory dose reduction in patients who are currently living at high dose. Mm-hmm. That's the only way to get the percentages down or to get the total milligrams coming out of your prescription pad down. Uh, I recently sat at, at a table full of vice presidents of health insurers uh, at a gathering, and they all said our goal was to get milligrams down by 20 to 40 percent in two years, and we did it. <laughs> and in general, the way they did it uh, was by taking the high dose people and forcing their dose down. And this is very, very dangerous, and it's unfortunately not evidence-based. So the CDC guideline thresholds do not require dose reduction against the patient's will. They specifically call for a patient-centered assessment based on evident benefit and evident harm. And if you think the benefit outweighs the harm, you're not supposed to reduce the dose. Mm -hmm. Even worse, though, is do we have any evidence that forcing a dose down against a patient's will will protect them in any way? And the answer is we do not have such evidence. Uh, The problem is, in fact, there was a nice review published in the Annals of Internal Medicine in July. Uh, Lots of low-quality evidence that with volunteers and well-resourced programs, There's moderate quality evidence that people feel a little better when their dose comes down. And we've all seen this. That's why it's good to offer a dose reduction. There are patients who say, you know what? I feel better right now that I've gone down on my dose. And there's a significant number of people who will do that. But when you encounter those high-risk people, the ones who make you look terrible in profiling tools, people who are already at very high doses, very tough patients to deal with, and you decide, I'm going to force you down from 450 to 100 or 450 to 60 so I can look better. A meaningful number of those patients will kill themselves. That's what I'm hearing from across the country. I'm not saying that is data. I'm saying that is many, 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 many anecdotes mm-hmm. that have simply had an impact on me as a provider. Uh, but that it, it, that um, that action that is incentivized is is simply somebody's taken the association between dose and risk and said, it's simple enough that I can just move risk down by changing dose without having the benefit of a randomized trial. Remember how we got our way into prescribing estrogen postmenopausally. Wonderful correlation. Receipt of estrogen was clearly associated with lower cardiac risk. It turned out to be a little bit more complicated than that. And this is also a little more complicated than that. 
High doses are a marker for failure to intervene and treat a wide range of situations that AJ just spoke about. Mm. High doses very often denote a high-risk patient. How we can reduce the risk for that patient is a very difficult issue. Um, but that the idea that you can simply move a dose number down and create safety uh, is it's very, very simplistic and untested. And I, unfortunately, my email inbox is a tidal wave of human distress and suicides uh, in, in exactly that situation. Obviously, I get high-dose patients. I usually inherit them. I never take them up to the high dose. And I say, you know, on average, I think it'd be better if we could get you to a lower dose. You want to give it a shot. Work with me closely. Let's see what we can do. Um, if I determine that harm from opioids is outweighing benefit in that situation, more often than not, what I'm going to suggest is working with somebody like AJ, trying to move over to buprenorphine, but not only changing the medication, but stabilizing them so they can do what AJ says, which is to engage in a life recovery program that's right. far more than just med management. What's, what's disturbing me greatly and why I was on NPR on Monday morning uh, and have published on this stuff repeatedly uh, is that there are people where the doctors are under pressure, they're forcing the doses down, they're doing it, un, uh, maybe thinking that they're going to make people healthy, the doctors are not held accountable for the patients of theirs who die. The doctors are not accountable for the patients of theirs who abandon their practice. The doctors are only accountable for the number of patients who are at lower dose and g coming down. This is the only situation I've seen recently where having your patient die makes you look much better than having your patient survive. If they die at high dose and they are not followed further, your numbers look better. So we are in serious trouble because that we have incentivized this dose reduction issue far too narrowly. Sorry, yeah. I just ranted. Did you see this, any of this stuff about Medicaid expansion fueling the opioid epidemic? And I, I had read one article that was sort of debunking that, but did, are you familiar with this at all? I had heard the argument. Um, I think that the, pre and I, the premise, as I understand it, is that Medicaid expansion um, may have allowed people to get access to prescription opioids and therefore develop addictions that they wouldn't have developed, perhaps. Right. Um, I, and, and, and since Medicaid expansion states include a number of post-industrial states, uh, you know, like Ohio, uh, that can be a particularly profound thing. However, it's worth pointing out that the rising problems with uh, addiction, uh, loneliness, uh, social conditions and poor populations that are that are adverse including the failure to gain in cardiac mortality these things are are tied to geography and they're tied to social class and those patterns are well in place before 2010 before medicaid expansion so the timing doesn't work um and and i'll you know finally it is reasonable to understand that very widespread availability of unused pills and pills that could be sold contributed to the market for abused drugs. I mean, if you're shipping 2 million tablets to a town of 100 people, the part of the reason those pills are going to that town is because many people have realized there's a cash opportunity by redistributing those pills. Mm -hmm. uh, so there is some impact, I think, from all those pills being prescribed. But the presumption that every patient who has addiction today and that every person who's shooting up heroin today started as a pain patient is not well supported by evidence. 
Um, so that's it's you have to realize as a complex population develops addiction, uh, we can take all the pain patients out of the country. We're still going to have a major addiction crisis. You know, I, I saw that question. I actually did a Google search on this just because I, I I like to get myself good and angry. And I, the argument that Medicaid expansion contributed towards the opioid crisis, I feel like there's one guy who wrote 17 different articles that were sort of published, and the guy's a fellow in like the some bland sounding the Society for Americans to Make America More American dot org, <laughs> and it's it's just it's such. I find the whole premise kind of irritating and sort of vaguely accusatory and sort of blaming the very population that would probably be most helped by access to care. But that's my own personal bias, which probably has no place in this show. So what what point were you going to make, Ben? Well, I think I think some could argue that Medicaid expansion would actually be a significant benefit for <laughs> opioid addiction. Huh. Like access to medical care, that kind of thing? Yeah, it that is. sounds actually, stupid. Actually, Virginia is, you know, again, I, I call upon the great state of Virginia. So, the the Virginia Medicaid now pays more money than commercial inference for treating using buprenorphine now. But you have to get certified into, into, into a particular treatment pattern. You have to have referral programs. You have to have adherence to the treatment guidelines and all those things. But if you adhere to those things, your payment is much higher but their their enrollment is still not going up. There was a an article in the New York Times, the the upshot, um, September twenty seventeen that we'll link to, and they they pointed out the same as Stefan that the the increase in opioids th- this started long before the Medicaid expansion came into place, and they actually looked at states where Medicaid was expanded, and in states where it added the most patients to Medicaid, actually there were lower rates of opioid uh, deaths there. And also there was a 43% increase in treatment for opioid use disorder in those states, uh, expanding Medicaid. So, I mean, there was a lot of, and and then the other thing that they said, you know, you could also look at this and say probably expanding Medicaid increased the risk of medical errors because now more people are being uh, you know, exposed to healthcare, which I thought right. was a funny, funny counterpoint or kind of a morbid one. No, but it's, it's a great point. And then also with global warming, we're seeing fewer pirate attacks. So really, it's, I mean, <laughs> it's all right there for you. Just it's cause and effect, people. <laughs> Wake up, people. <laughs> Gentlemen, we've gone pretty long, but I was very interested in the discussion. So I didn't want to cut it off. I'm going to ask now if uh, Paul Stewart uh, or our our producers, are there, is there any major things we missed here that we should ask about before we go? I literally heard crickets. <laughs> no, nothing for me. <laughs> well, then I'm going to ask Stefan for his take home points, and then we'll get AJ for his take home points next. So, Stefan, I, I think my, my most important take home point is to realize. Uh, maybe two things. One is that very often our opioid prescribing uh, in the first place and our current opioid response involves two sides of the same coin. And that coin is that we are very reluctant as a society to develop systems of care for people who have very complex medical and psychological needs. It always looks very tempting to think if I just could push that pain score down with a pill, I'll have problems taken care of. That's how we got all the way to 2010. And it looks very appealing now to say, if I could just push those opioid doses down by acting like the virtuous hard ass that I really want to be, <laughs> we're going to solve some complex problems. Both things are completely 
you know, both are just the same coin, and it's a fundamental laziness and a lack of a serious intention to take good care of people. My other idea is AJ is brilliant, and I like listening to him. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I, I, first of all, regarding opioid use disorder, it's a deadly disease treated, please. It is easily treatable. It looks intimidating from outside, but it is very simple, relatively one of the most simplest thing you will do when you get into it. It is use, treating opioid disorder, use disorder is extremely simple in 80% of the people. It is it's just plain. You treat them, they get better, they hug you, they think you are the best thing in the after sliced bread. <laughs> it is fantastic, right? The second thing is that I'm looking at the two people who are not here and can coming up as the next the future of our profession. Yes. Right? The world they are going to see is a world of multimorbidity. Chronic disease multimorbidity. And the way we are preparing them from for that world is hyper specialization. So there is a there's a dissonant training our patients, you know, if you look at the, the, the current opioid epidemic, what the patients are telling us that I have all these complications. I have this 15 problems which I cannot find a solution. Hence, I drink. Hence, I have opioids, right? And we are telling them, you treat buprenorphine and you will be better. No. Mm-hmm. Right, you prescribe you you know opioids for pain and you'll get better. You do a spinal surgery, you will be better. No, they are not going to get better. So, how, how what do we do with this multimorbidity in the coming years? And that is where the money is for the future. You know, people who can figure out an answer to this, how to develop systems to manage those, those are going to be the Nobel laureates of the future. Awesome. Thank you so much, gentlemen. I, I had a lot of fun tonight, and I, I, I thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks a for pleasure. coming back. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I feel more, I feel, I think as clear as I'm going to get in the near future on this now. Yeah, I, I still have plenty of questions, but, you know, I, I they, they made their point very clear. And uh, it, it's just unfortunate. I, th- I think to some degree, I disagree with their point. Um, Which point? Well, the, the, the whole approach to even your post-surgical patient who's on mo- low to moderate dosages of narcotics po- uh, post-surgically, I was, I was a little concerned about the just the framework and approach that they were using. But, you know, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. Maybe I just need to approach it uh, differently. But I'm, I'm, I'm willing to uh, challenge my preconceptions. Yeah, it's, I, I struggled with this one a little bit. I, I think I sort of – the point I was trying to raise earlier is really what they're describing sounded a lot like chronic disease to me. So, with the, mm-hmm. the whole – and it just – it does not – and I'm and i not a pain specialist. I'm not an addiction specialist. So, I think maybe my framework is flawed or I, it's it's just uh, grown out of the patients that I take care of. But I mm-hmm. – proposing that this is just simple chemistry, you know, you just treat the addiction and the patient gets better, just – I. I struggle and it's not what I've seen. Maybe that's my own exposure bias, taking care of the patient population that I take care of where addiction is, uh, I think self-medication for a lot of crushing, uh, socioeconomic disparity. So I, you know, I just, I don't think it's quite as straightforward as it was laid out. And so as a result, I had a hard time 
Right. Um, even sort of countering any of the arguments just because I, I feel like I see different patients or at least I see a different side of patients than, than maybe mm-hmm. we were discussing. I, I don't know. I, I think it's odd that, that, that Paul and I are in such significant agreement on this episode. It's very strange. I don't like it. I think on a national level, whether or not this is even a disease or not, seems like even among AJ and Stefan, they had a little bit of a discordant beliefs there. And I think Stuart, and I'm getting from you guys that you think this is not necessarily a, well, Paul, you think it's a disease. Stuart, you're, you're giving me this impression that you think this is a more of a mental health disorder a, a or a moral thing than a, than a disease. Yeah, I, I, I think that there's a lot of different ways to, to look at it. I think for some individuals, it, it can be straight up disease process. And for some, it's probably more of a comorbid psychiatric disorder yeah. that you need to treat. Um, I, I don't, I don't think you can, you can put everyone into, into one pile. I don't right. think that's detrimental. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I, I don't know what the answer is. I, I mean, I'm still, I feel more clear on at least what, how they feel about this and like at least a <laughs> bit of an approach. I mean, for me, like I, I thought I was always, I always thought I was doing a favor by being a complete hard ass about prescribing opiates. Right. And I no longer think that's, that's the, the right answer. Now, starting someone on opiates, sure, you don't have to do that, especially if they have like the, the, the red flags he was talking about, you know, mm-hmm. they're already polypharmacy yeah. and they already have a unstable living situation and comorbid psych. Yeah. That person shouldn't be started on opiates, but I think that just if that person comes to you and they're out of opioids and you're, you're is like either send them out to the streets or prescribe them, you know, I think now I'd be, I'd with the right patient, I might actually prescribe them where in the past there was no way in hell I would have prescribed them. Yeah. But you know, they're talking about these, like this, uh, risk of like the person goes and uses it on the streets. Now they're going to get like heroin laced with fentanyl and they're going to die or they're going to commit suicide because they were on high doses and they got tapered down too quickly. So I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't want that on, I don't want that either. Well, I, I think this might make for a good, I, I mean, we can see what the audience response is to this and we might want to do a follow-up round table or a face. This might even be a good Facebook live show, but I think this would be good to, uh, to, to do another one. This is another episode of the Curbsiders. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. Yummy. That where you supposed to put that? <laughs> you can also sign up to receive our weekly mailing list where you'll get a PDF copy of our expertly done show notes. And we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. So please send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And finally, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham, and I'm tired. Good night. (laughs) (laughs) And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams, and good night. It's been wonderful having you tonight, Paul. <laughs> you are tired. And thank you to our writers slash producers for this episode, Carolyn Chan and Elena Gibson, who put a ton of work into this one. Thank you so much. Great job, guys.
did Paul cut out for anyone else or was that just my That's that's just you. I hear him just fine. You could have just stopped paying attention, which would be reasonable too. <laughs> I'm sorry, Paul. 